This is Daniel Fagella, Head of Research at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research. You're listening to the AI in Business Podcast. Today we are focused on the world of life sciences. We've covered many direct use cases and applications of AI in life sciences, everything from computer vision to unique applications for drug discovery and automating the writing of clinical trials reports, you name it. We've, we've covered a ton. We've yet to talk about the topic of knowledge graphs in drug discovery, and that's exactly what we cover today. Our guest is Dr. Krishna Balusu. He holds a PhD from the Institute of Cancer Research. He did his postdoctoral research at the University of Cambridge, and up until recently was an honorary lecturer for the Department of Neuroscience at the University of Sheffield. For the last six years, he's been with AstraZeneca currently as the Director of Early Computational Oncology. Someone who, needless to say, knows his stuff uh, between both data science and his subject matter expertise. We speak today about knowledge graphs. How can we more effectively leverage the endless streams of data that we develop in life sciences in order to help us develop drugs and treatments? That's what Krishna focuses on in this episode. And this episode is also part of our AI is Here series. So not surprisingly, we spend a lot of our time focusing on the current impact of artificial intelligence, where and how are knowledge graphs actually impacting workflows today. The AI is Here series is brought to you by Samba Nova. As I've mentioned in some of these previous introductions, you can learn more about Samba Nova in the outro of this episode. We're glad to be able to work with Krishna to record this particular conversation and get this along to you. So without further ado, let's roll right in. This is Krishna with AstraZeneca here on the AI and Business Podcast. So Krishna, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Sean. Glad to be here. Yes, glad to have you. Life sciences is a fast-moving space, and I know when we talked off microphone around a use case or trend in life sciences that you're seeing really make an impact today, you had this theme around knowledge graphs. I wonder if you could introduce us to what that means in terms of just phraseology here, and then talk a little bit about the impact in life sci. I think this is going to be a new topic for many of our listeners. Indeed, yeah. Happy to introduce uh, your listeners to uh, uh, knowledge graphs. Relatively speaking, knowledge graphs are new to the biomedical space. Now, a knowledge graph in a very simple sense is a collection of data and the relationships between individual data points, which can then help us make non-intuitive connections. Now, the way which I usually describe this to my internal non-technical audience is it's it's a bit like Netflix recommending what the next show or movie you should be watching based on not only what you watched in the past, but also based on what people around the world who have seen similar things and who have liked similar things to what you do have then gone on to watch and enjoy. So instead of recommending the next movie or the TV show to watch, we'd like to recommend the next new drug target and the next new patient subpopulation. Got it. So the analogy to Netflix, I think, is going to be one that clicks mentally for many of our listeners. I think in terms of where the knowledge graph fits in, I, my hunch here is that a knowledge graph would imply that we need a very complicated taxonomy for those different patient groups, ways of clustering them, grouping them, naming them by different traits, and, and obviously a very you know similarly robust and complex taxonomy for the actual, you know, proteins or molecules that we're working with, et cetera. Where, where does knowledge graph itself kind of fit in here? Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an excellent question because 
if we look at drug discovery as a journey right from the start where I've identified what the next new drug target should be, all the way to finding the right drug molecule, a small molecule, and then turning that into a drug and then marketing that and then putting it, delivering it towards patient benefit. Now, a knowledge graph could potentially fit at every stage of this journey. Right at the start of this journey, which is the target discovery piece, the ontologies and the taxonomy which which the graph needs to learn from and the graph needs to integrate goes across piece of biology and chemistry and pharmacology and disease ontologies. So pretty much a huge complex space coming into a single platform. Uh, and I'm going to use the acronym FAIR quite a lot, which I'm sure most of your listeners would be aware of. For, for those of you who haven't come across this acronym, it's F-A-I-R. It stands for findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. Concept behind this, the idea behind this, and as well as the vision, is that every piece of data that we generate should be findable by other people, should have the right kind of cross-references so that it's interoperable. It's also reusable, so I can use the same data towards a question which might not be the same question for which the data is generated, but for something else where the inferences will be valuable. So this complex world of taxonomies and ontologies need to come together into this one single platform, which can then help answer a range of questions across the drug discovery pipeline. Got it. And we've been close enough. We work with a number of companies in the document search and discovery space in life sciences and happen to know that there's vendors who do nothing except for sell very complicated taxonomies of different kinds of molecules and proteins and various and sundry life sciences components and bits because of how robust and insanely complex these are. Because maybe you could give some context for the listeners, but from what I gather, this is so much easier said than done because the same protein or molecule might be referred to in a number of different ways as an abbreviated way, maybe a Latin name, maybe a name when it's combined with this, a name when it's combined with that. And, and, discerning these things into something that is fair is extremely hard. Talk about why this is even a challenge and why it's not a just a kind of foregone conclusion. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, I'm sure m- uh, most of your listeners have all, also come across this analogy that, you know, 80% of a data science life is uh, putting the right data in the right format together, only 20% is the actual analysis. Yeah. It could not be more true when it comes to knowledge graphs, because uh, exactly as you as you put it, Fair for you is different and fair for me is different. What I consider is good enough curation and harmonization of data would be very different to someone else. So that itself brings in a significant amount of bias in the way we capture information, let alone make it interoperable. There are two things here. Again, I'm fundamentally a biologist who is now trained in data science. And I'm pretty sure I mean... Uh, I mean, no disrespect to my fellow biologists when I say biology is far more dirty than chemistry will ever be. Chemistry follows a set of principles very similar to mathematics, where I can only call a, uh, call something in a, in, in a particular way or a well-defined way. In biology, I can call the same gene in five different ways. All five would be true. And the problem is when we are trying to define a true positive training set, this becomes a challenge if you're not calling all of them in, 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 the, in a similar sense, or at least finding one common identifier that can connect all these things. It's tricky business because we are not only talking about the genes, but biology itself is complex in the way it's represented. 
because we are talking about the world and nature and and everything that contains this, right? So the diseases itself. For when when I first started learning cancer research, which is my area of specialization, yep. my knowledge was that there are eighteen cancers, cancer types. There are actually about two hundred different cancer types. Now, if I'm trying to classify or categorize a patient population based on what cancer they have, then it can't be one level or another level. It's a whole hierarchy that needs to come together, and yeah. the knowledge graph needs to be robust enough to capture this hierarchy. And it it seems as though you could have fifty PhDs all with specializations. You know, for you maybe it's computational oncology, which is what you're doing now with AstraZeneca, or you know, with somebody else, it's some other facet of of what you folks are doing. You know, fifty people work on it for fifty years and maybe not even get done with how complicated all these various and sundry trees are. What's the work look like to actually build something that is fair? Because, like you said, in biology, it gets unbelievably messy. What does it look like to get to something that's good enough to be able to to serve a role in in um, kind of a real application? Yeah, there are quite a few startups and academic groups who've been uh, asking this question for a long time. So there's quite a lot of presence and knowledge within this space in the scientific community itself and the technology community, of course. So there's there's quite a bit we can learn from. And I think the word we you used is pretty apt. You said, "What is good enough?" So there is there is this concept of minimum information standards, right? So what is the level of information and annotation of the metadata that will get you started to run an analysis? So we, we're not boiling the ocean here, but what is the minimum information standard that any piece of data needs to adhere to before you can start using it? And over the course of working on this project and leading the team, what we've actually realized is there isn't one answer to this. It has to be context-specific. So there, there isn't one knowledge graph to rule them all. What is clean enough and what is a decipherable enough uh, knowledge graph for a given question might not be for another. So we, what we've learned is that we take it on a case-by-case basis. So what is the information that for this particular question gives us enough of an insight into the complex world of biology and pharmacology? Got it. So yeah, being able to define those minimum standards in the context in which we're going to use the data. And the tough part is, like you said, we want it to be reusable. So there might be all kinds of ways we want to draw upon this data in the future that we haven't thought of now, but we can't think of all of those, right? We, we sort of need to get to some level of minimum standard that you're talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, this this is where the question actually comes, which I'm sure you you can understand that in an organization where I work, or or at least the community I work with, for example, I'm my, my my key stakeholders and the people who care about the results that come out of Knowledge Graph are either lab experts or in the clinical space. So these are individuals who are such experts in their field. It's my job to translate whatever is coming from a Knowledge Graph or even what a Knowledge Graph is into into their world. Now. When it, when it comes to this translation piece, what, what becomes even more important is what are all the questions that a given knowledge graph can help answer? And as I saying, that, that is the advantage of a knowledge graph. So there are quite a few methods out there which are absolutely wonderful within the biomedical space. But why, why should we care about a knowledge graph? And the answer is, you know, it goes two ways. One is 
everything we've been talking about till now, which is a knowledge graph is a wonderful common platform to bring very diverse pieces of information together. So your gene communicates with the cell line, a cell line communicates with the disease, a disease to a patient, a patient to a drug, a drug to a side effect, and so on. So you can you can literally build a story around around a drug discovery journey within a particular knowledge graph itself. And something within the AI and um, machine learning life science space, which we've seen is a, a recent explosion in multiomics data. And again, for, for your listeners who are not into healthcare AI, it literally means how many different ways can I measure a given endpoint? So for a given patient, what is their lifestyle? What drugs have they been on in the past? What treatments have they responded? What about their genomics? How do they carry certain mutation? Have they responded to some other treatment in the past but have now stopped responding to it? So these these are all different layers of omics which need to come together and knowledge graphs are great at building these layers and the relationships between these layers. Another added piece of complexity, if, if I may, is a critical piece within a knowledge graph, well, what makes a knowledge graph a knowledge graph is the relationships between entities. Now, the same two pieces of data can have two very different conflicting relationships, and both could be true depending on the question they're asking. And and it's important to capture both relationships if we have to answer two different questions. And so... Many, many reasons why this stuff is not a foregone conclusion in terms of, oh, put the data together. We all know how it needs to be organized. And now we can answer questions. Obviously, much, much, much harder than that as you've you've applied here. I, I want to use a bit more time before we talk about some lessons learned in terms of AI adoption and, and some of what you've picked up on in your journey here in life sciences. I want to talk a little bit more about a concrete use case. So obviously, knowledge graphs are in use today. I happen to know this, again, from doing a lot of work in the document search and discovery space in LifeSci. You may be using them in different ways. You mentioned at the top of our interview that there's a Netflix analogy of, hey, here's a recommendation for how this patient population might be treated with maybe some of the, you know, starting with some of these molecules as our kind of early hypotheses. Walk us through a little bit, you know, a non-hypothetical use case, a use case that that mm-hmm. is viable today. So freeze time, we'll look at today. Where is AI fitting in to make these knowledge graphs come to life? And I'd, I'd love to do this through the lens of whoever's taking the action. So maybe this is mm-hmm. like uh, some PhD whose job it is to test molecules all day. It doesn't really matter who the user is, but give us the life of a user and sort of where they get some value out of these knowledge graphs with AI. Yeah, so uh, practical use case, which we've actually published recently as well. So I think I can, I can share the link with you. This is for a given treatment. Who are the patients who do not respond to the treatment and why do they not respond? Uh, uh, for obvious reasons, I can't mention the treatment or, or, the, or the actual biology itself. But probably the most applied use of knowledge graphs, the most practical use of knowledge graphs is within the space of what is the biology that is driving a specific phenotype, uh, in this case, resistance to a drug and this this also flips the other the flip side of the coin is target discovery as i was saying right at the start how do we know if we have 20000 potential drug targets for a particular disease for the particular cancer type what are the targets which i should chase to turn it into a potential treatment in the future 
And knowledge graphs are, are great for that. So this this hypothetical PhD student who just wanted to do an experiment, they would come to us and say, this is a specific area of biology I'm interested in. And in my area of biology, I've gone to PubMed or Google, and I've seen that there are about 20,000 papers which talk about potential opportunities in this space. Now, how do I know which ones are most relevant? How do I know which ones have the most evidence? And how do I know which of these are even actionable in the lab? So can you help us do that? So we build a snapshot of a knowledge graph for what we call a subgraph. So the graph itself is very bespoke to this particular question. And we pull together information from literature. There are 45 million scientific literature out there. So individual publications as well as patents. And yeah, we we not only bring that together, but the added piece of complexity which comes is because we also have, as an organization, a lot of internal knowledge. The knowledge graph is a perfect place to bring together the world's knowledge with our internal knowledge and run some practical AI algorithms on top of it because there's the graph analytical space, the graph machine learning space is quite well studied, not for biomedical reasons, not for biomedical questions, which is coming up quite rapidly. But literally, at the end of the day, a graph is a relationship between two entities. So it does not matter if it's a biomedical entity or anything else. Yeah. So the methodology itself is very translatable. So we apply those methods and identify, right, this node is more important than another node because it connects to very critical pieces of communities within the graph. Go ahead and try and run an experiment to prove or disprove our hypothesis. Is there an analogy here? And I'd just like to make sure you can correct me if I'm wrong. Is there an analogy of sort of, you know, finding needles in haystacks? Obviously, drug development is not exactly a 100% success rate process, as you and I are well aware, you know, it costs billions of dollars, we have to try Mm -hmm. so many various and sundry experiments before we can get somewhere productive. It sounds to me as though the knowledge graph is sort of potentially suggesting a possibility space that we hope, and maybe someday we'll be able to tangibly prove is more fruitful. In other words, more likely to hit on a needle instead of more hay, more likely Mm -hmm. to hit on a solution as opposed to just another damn experiment than if we just try to do all of this with our own human intuition. It sounds as though that's the value proposition, but I want to make sure that that's the right way to sum it up. It is. Maybe add a tiny twist to it. So you're absolutely right. The whole target discovery space, drug discovery space is, is needle in a haystack. What we are trying to see is converting the haystack into a well-connected network, right? That's the knowledge graph. So even if I'm not pinpointing what exactly is where the needle is, I'm pinpointing what string to pull, what piece of hay to pull that will lead you to the needle. And that's that's pretty much what we are trying to do with, with the knowledge graph itself. Got it. Okay, understood. So this is a, maybe an adjustment to that analogy for our listeners. I appreciate you trying to nutshell things with me. I think this is getting more clear mentally. This sort of takes us into our next question, which is around some of the lessons you've learned in actually applying these techniques. Obviously, there's been a lot of complexity. You've done a tremendous amount of academic work as a lecturer and you know, doing your PhD and now applying this stuff in the real world. When you think about what non-technical leaders should understand about bringing this knowledge graph use case to life, what are those things that somebody at kind of a director level who's really trying to solve important problems? In your case, obviously, it's discover the right drugs, make good use of the the time of their talented people. What do those non-technical leaders kind of need to grasp about this use case to make it come to life well? Quite a few here, actually. 
Yeah, let's let, do let it. Let me start with maybe a short warning. A knowledge graph and the downstream analytics, it's it's not a push-button exercise. It's not a stage where someone comes with a question. I say, oh, there you go. I already have a knowledge graph built. I'll hit enter, and there you go. That's the result. It's not going to get to that stage, or maybe maybe I'm being too much of a purist here. Maybe it should not get to that stage because we we have seen through quite a few use cases and, and of course, failures that there is no one knowledge graph to rule them all. It has to be context-specific. It depends on how much information you have, which is specific to that question. Uh, we, we do get a request and we say, do you know this question does not actually need a knowledge graph? So it depends on where you can add the most, as you said, the value proposition lies. So the value proposition for us lies two places. One, can we identify the same solution in a much faster way because we have an automated system to do that, which already captures all this prior knowledge. Two, can we identify those hypotheses which as humans and with our own inherent biases and biology itself has inherent bias, we would never otherwise identify. It would never come up to the top of our, of our list if I'm doing a manual curation process. So these are the two places where value lies. And my advice on that level to executives within this field would be first spend a bit of time understanding the question itself and whether it requires a knowledge graph as part of the decision tree if you do decide that it requires a knowledge graph to what is the piece of data that can help answer this question it doesn't have to be exactly the same uh, it doesn't have to be a direct edge but is this piece of data even within if not one hop beyond that can it be connected to the question in some way or the other if it is, again, down the tree again, which is, is the data clean enough? Is the data fair enough? That's the piece, right? Is that, and how much effort will it take to actually verify the whole piece of data? If it can be, then yes, perfect, go ahead. And probably the most important thing here is once any recommendation comes out of a knowledge graph, it will have to be validated. The ultimate proof here is a validation study. So it needs to be validated by experts. It needs to be validated by an experiment because it's important to know where the graph fails because the quality of graphs are noisy, inherently noisy because there are far too many relationships. It's important to know if the noisiness is actually making its way into the recommendation itself. So from a technical standpoint, these would, this, these would be my advice. I'll, I'd like to add one thing, which is, which is more of a cliched answer, but it's very important to recruit the right people in the space. As I mentioned, it's knowledge graphs are relatively new to the biomedical space, but there have been countless examples now which are coming through at a rapid pace. So this could be drug repositioning within rare cancers, rare diseases. Uh, this could be, as I said, target discovery in, within, the, within the pandemic times. COVID knowledge graphs were everywhere because, because it was all about repositioning. What is out there which we can very quickly use to save lives. So there are good applications, but the number of people who are still still a tiny population. So my advice to recruitment managers would be to find the right people who will have very different skills to what uh, what you do. Yeah. So some important kind of stuff on the technical and non-technical side. Let me see if I can nutshell this. We'll get into our final question here for today. It sounds like two important messages, and, and these are ones that our listeners fortunately have had drummed into their skulls a great many times being listeners here long term on the program, hearing from a lot of very experienced people. One is 
have an understanding of where this technology can add value. Know where is this the right hammer for your nail? Because a knowledge graph or AI approaches are not silver bullets. They're going to require effort. We need to understand, okay, what are the circumstances under which this is the right tool for the job? And as business people, we really need to know that before we invest in these technologies. And a second one you'd mentioned was understand the fact that the setup of this particular use case, again, we're talking about knowledge graphs and drug discovery right now, will require knowing how to iteratively determine the accuracy of this model. So sort of there is the care and feeding of our system. There is the maintenance and measurement of our system. It is not merely building it on the front end. So know that that is going to be required. Know that keeping tabs on that is going to be critical and that that is going to be part of something that takes time and money to bring these things to life. Is that is that a good enough nutshelling of your first two points or is there anything you'd like to add to that? Uh, that is That is an excellent summary of my first book two points. The probably a tiny addition is the iterative nature. Now, graphs evolve over a period of time. If we are talking about a living and learning knowledge graph, which can dynamically help answer certain questions, the graph needs to evolve. So the word iterative is critical here. A graph will evolve. So will the relationships within a graph. So will the results that will come out of a graph. Got it. So Important things for those of you who are not going to be writing the code, which is certainly most of our listeners, to have a firm grasp of before going down this road. Clearly a powerful use case, but obviously there's important things to know as we move into it. My last question here, Krishna, is around sort of AI in EMEA. We're we're speaking to a lot of very smart people in the UK and in Europe in general around artificial intelligence. You have been out here to the Boston area because your employer happens to, to have a location out here. And I I wonder if you'd have a perspective on this that might be interesting for the listeners. When you think about enterprise AI adoption, maybe it's also AI talent, AI deployment in the EU versus, let's say, the states, are there any things that are important for you to note in terms of differences, differences in how decisions are made from execs, differences in terms of aggressiveness of new kinds of applications? I'd love to get a sense kind of of what, what is potentially different or worth understanding about the European environment there. Yeah, no, it's a it's it's a very very interesting question. Probably also very intriguing. And uh, I think my I'll, I'll try and answer this in two different ways. One within the healthcare sector itself, how this AI adoption is different, and the second one is beyond healthcare itself. I think at the base of it, it 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 will come down to what are the translatable uh, pieces of knowledge technology which can move beyond domains. So something which is built for the energy sector being utilized for the healthcare sector, something which is built for self-driving cars coming into the machine, in, into the artificial intelligence and healthcare world. I think that jump is happening quite well. I think that can happen even better. I think, again, we're a bit, just because of the geographical proximity or, or, or something around those spaces, it, it might make it easier within within certain continents as opposed to others, but that is something which will drive a mega change in the way AI adoption across well enterprise AI happens within large organizations and even even startups, it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, large organizations. The second piece of my answer here would be within the healthcare sector itself. Now, when you use AI to come up with a recommendation that immediately impacts a human being, a patient's life, it will obviously need to go through certain regulations and certain rules and certain guidelines and principles and ethics. That's 
I think that from an industry, from a from our own domain perspective, that's going to be quite different because different organizations, different countries, different uh, continents will have their own definitions of what this looks like and what does this mean. So when it comes to EU, for example, then talk about GDPR, what level of data you can share, what can you use the data for, how much is an individual aware of what their data being is used for. And when it comes to AI and machine learning, as we all know, more data, better it is to come up with more accurate <laughs> yeah. predictions. Is any of that, in your opinion, different in terms of perspective? I mean, some of the fundamentals of just deploying AI successfully are going to be the same no matter what side of the pond you're on. They'll be the same on the moon. But in terms of sort of the reality of how these things are deployed and how executives are deciding on projects and how aggressive they are in investing in this stuff, is there anything at all that you feel like could be different kind of in terms of what European enterprises maybe struggle with or are good at? Maybe it's talent, maybe it's process, et cetera. Maybe it's executive decision-making versus elsewise. Any take there? Well, I mean, tal- okay, let's start with talent. So talent is, I think, definitely one of the key indicators of how well we are doing within within this industry. From the outside, it, it does feel like uh, North America has a much larger talent pool as well as a larger opportunity space uh, as compared to what we have within the EU. Again, this is a very personal opinion, by the way, not, not, not a generalized statement. Perfectly fine. But at the, at the same time, th- this is where um, I, I'll go back to my previous answer, which is how translatable is this talent across domains? And I think the translatability of talent across these different functions, different industries, what, what I have seen in my personal experience of recruiting individuals within the team is it's, it's easier to do that within US, within North America, than, than it is in the EU. This startup space is something which we should talk about in terms of what's different uh, across different geographical locations as well. The startup space is very vibrant everywhere, right? So in the US it is, in the EU there's mass space. I'm in Cambridge, UK, which is the startup capital of, of the country here. And the support these early stage AI startups uh, require and deserve, but in, in the end, whether they get or don't get, that is very different across the pond as well. And I think that's something where where we could learn quite a bit in terms of the amount of support and the amount of you know sponsorship and funding available um, uh, to such organizations. Yeah, so building kind of a more robust venture ecosystem for the startups that needed in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And there are quite a few wonderful ones, right? I mean, they're they're absolutely wonderful organizations and which have been come out which have been coming up recently. Um there's some brilliant ideas which which for large organizations is a bit risky, but you know, we as as organizations and we partner with uh, with academic institutions, startups and so on. So these are these are opportunities where there is a potential win-win situation here. Got it. Okay, cool. Super worthwhile point for folks to to take home. Krishna, I know that that's all we had for time on this interview. I sincerely appreciate you being able to join us from across the pond. It's been great having you on. Thanks again. Thank you very much, Dan. I enjoyed the chat.
So that is all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. Thank you to you as a listener for tuning in all the way through to the end of this episode. And a big thank you to Krishna for being able to join us. This was a very fun conversation for me. I hope it was a useful one for those of you who are tuned in. I suspect we will hear more and more about knowledge graphs in the years ahead. I think their applications are going to be wide and vast. I think there's financial services applications, manufacturing applications. But hearing about the up-close and personal impact in life sciences was a fun journey today. Speaking of a fun journey, if you've enjoyed learning with us here, I'm glad to have you as a listener, but I also like to make sure that you're with us in the newsletter. Make sure you never miss a podcast episode and that you get all of our latest articles, infographics, frameworks, and more. If you want to learn more about adopting artificial intelligence, frameworks for the return on investment of AI, then you'll want to make sure that you are on the Emerge newsletter. It's emerj.com slash n1. That's n as in newsletter, and then the number one, emerj.com slash n1. You can sign up for our newsletter there. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we kick out an email with everything that we have produced in the previous three to five days, and it makes it pretty darn simple for you to be able to peruse through what could be relevant for you and drink in insights from excellent experts, people like Krishna, but across all kinds of industries. Again, that's emerj.com slash n1. And again, in closing, this AI is Here series is brought to you by Samba Nova. They have given us a wide berth to be able to interview great experts from all kinds of industries and highlight where AI is making an impact. Samba Nova believes that AI is here, and that's why they've commissioned this series and allowed us to be able to find great experts in different sectors. You can learn more about Samba at sambanova.com slash AI dash is dash here. Or you can just Google Samba Nova, just like it sounds. AI is here, and you'll find the same page there. But uh, you can learn more about Samba Nova on their website as well. So that's all for this episode. Thank you again for tuning in. I look forward to catching you in the next one.